And now, do you like Prince movies? Hey everybody, this is Do You Like Prince Movies? I'm Alex Papadimus. I'm Wesley Morris. I want everybody on Twitter to know that I, I did find the shuffle button on title. If anybody was concerned, it's right where you would think it would be. We didn't talk about that. Did no, we? but I did you, I put did you it out tweet there. out to people tweeted, like yeah. where's the shuffle button? I was like where's the shuffle button? And then somebody was like it's on the it's on the left. Some some at least one person helpfully chimed and didn't say, you know, was very polite about it. Um but it's where it's exactly where it should be. Uh so this week we are going to talk about um important television. Uh, or television wrapped up. Uh, Mr. Robot ended its first season last week, a week later than originally scheduled. And Alex, I'm assuming you watched the end of Show Me a Hero and you have feelings and thoughts. Is that true? It's true. That's, that is correct. Do you okay. be correct that I have feelings and thoughts about uh, both of them, which is you know fortuitous since uh, recording a podcast. That's what we are here to do. And... Um, we're talking about Steve Jobs, the man in the machine, the man in the machine, um, not the man and the machine. That's a, it's probably a different movie, uh, documentary about Steve Jobs by Alex Gibney. And lastly, the weekend's new album, which came out last week or two weeks ago now. Um, and then jam of the week. So last week, we were supposed to, or two weeks ago, we were supposed to have a Mr. Robot finale. And it didn't happen because of that terrible shooting in Virginia. And the USA, USA Network postponed it. And it ran last week. And I have to say, as these things go, I think whatever, the, whatever people had been looking for in a television show to give them the high that, that a show like Breaking Bad gave them from a narrative standpoint. No, I haven't finished Narcos, but I apparently am also the only person not watching eight episodes of that show a day. But it looks like Mr. Robot kind of, I mean, it hits the spot for me. And I think in some ways it is a more ambitious, it is a, it is a more thematically ambitious show than Breaking Bad. Um, and I'm really, I'm really excited and curious to see what happens in season two. And somebody, a friend of mine, <laughs> texted me uh, maybe the day after or two days after with a theory that really blew my mind. And maybe it was I went back and rewatched the episode, and it, maybe it was obvious to everybody else. I mean, it's still not that obvious to me, but um, I will. I will see if you mention it, and then oh, do we? You and I talked about. Wait, we didn't talk about this. You might actually believe this too, um, but you had another compelling theory that turned out to not be true, but was so compelling that actually we don't know for sure that it's not true. We don't know anything. We don't know what's yeah, true. We don't and know what's anything. Not. We don't know anything. That's a great point. Well, no, I mean we we don't know. You know, I mean, when you hear the creator of Mr. Robot, Sam Esmail, talk about Mr. Robot, it sounds like season two of Mr. Robot could be anything. It sounds mm-hmm. like it's just this is all it could, it's I think the, the difference is that it's like if Breaking Bad was like, oh, it's not about meth anymore. It's now something completely different because like the, the right. kinda, there was, it, you know, the, the season finale, Mr. Robot, uh, you know, spoilers, obviously. But uh, the, the, the kind of the, there's a sort of financial apocalypse brought on by these, you know, the, the, the hacking of uh, the F Society hacker group. Um, I don't know. I, I, th- I found the 
I was a little confused by the financial apocalypse. I know that we're supposed to believe that Evil Corp is so involved in every aspect of everything in the world than all the ATMs and everything and all the, the credit cards that that could go down. But I think it, I thought it was inconsistent. It's like either the world ended or it didn't. I always feel like if there's no more, you know, like what exactly did they do and what, what is, what still exists and what stopped working. So there's no, there's no like bodega ATMs, but you can, and you can't use your credit card, but there's still like, like do, do, do people lose all of their money? I don't, I mean, I don't know. This is yeah, a, no, I mean, I it's this. a little, the logistics are, are a little confusing. I'm sure someone has like very explicitly laid them out. I have, I have yet to stumble upon that explication. I need, I need that true detective for dummies yeah. thing, but for, but for this, for certain aspects of this, of this show. And, the, you know, although the, the thing I like about it is that it's not, they, they don't get hung up on explaining. Right, it's things. not contingent upon. I mean, like the I like I see. I what I like in a show like this or any sort of even with even in certain books when things like this happen, like it, to get hung up on the particulars and a not like. I mean, you either are Don DeLillo about it or David Foster Wallace about it, or you're much more abstract in like in the Orwellian sense. I mean, Orwell had like he had details, but they didn't necessarily, they were entirely allegorical and didn't conform to any like necessarily concrete reality. Right. Like the cloud, um, DeLillo is not explaining to you the physics of like the cloud from white noise or whatever the, you know, the, the thing, the event. Right, 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 right. No, no, no. So, okay. So the toxic airborne event is a bad example, but if, but an underworld, for instance, but like yeah, if but you, it doesn't go if into you're a lot hung detail, up on, yeah. well, right. But if you're hung up on on a certain, if you're a nerd for a particular kind of thing, you kind of like your skepticism about the thing you're getting. Which in this case, in the case of Mister Robot, is economic cataclysm. Um, and you want to know how cataclysmic? I mean, the question is: the show either shows you how that's true, and you just believe it, or it goes into a lot of potentially boring detail about what exactly it, it means for F society to have gone through with this evil core pack. Um, I think in this case of the show, I just accept that, that people's debts are, are no more. And the idea that, I mean, there is a couple really chilling images in the, in that episode. One of which were, was the Times square full of people in these F society masks. Um, and the sort of horror, the sort of horror of all that sort of uncanniness, that sort of classical uncanniness, uh, I just found to be really disturbing. And so it's things like that, this idea that you now have these two societies of, of I mean, you can't say they're, they're have-nots. They like are have-no-mores or have-lesses. Uh, if the assumption is that everybody owed the government or some corporation some kind of money, um, the relief of that debt has sort of inspired this wave of, of, you know, it's sort of grown this, this swollen, the anarchist ranks against, against this one company. I find that really exciting in some ways and that there's somebody there to control the, to control the masses. Well, we'll see. We'll see how controllable they are, I guess. I guess yeah. that's, you know, that's season two. I don't know. It's exciting. It's exciting to see that. What do, I mean, how do you feel about the, the, the fight clubishness? of it all the degree to which it has actually like it, 
it's been really interesting to follow this, but it has been really following those beats. It's like if this if if this show was called Fight Club and was like, oh, it's a reboot of Fight Club. It's amazing. Like it, it would it would actually work pretty well as like the right. Battlestar Galactica modern version of, of of Fight Club. Um, I don't know what it says about the passage of time in those in all those years that the Brad Pitt character is played by Christian Slater. Um, I I don't know. Uh, but I mean, literalizing Elliot's his his state of mind in that way was was really interesting. Even though I don't think it sort of answered some of the physical logistics questions. Um, you know, like there is there are still there are like there's a moment where <laughs> he he picks up uh, Elliot, where Mister Robot picks Elliot up off the floor, and you're just trying to like visualize how that worked. Um, but I think that well, the thing that my the 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 thing that that is still out there is 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 where's uh, Terrell? Yeah, and um, I don't know. Do you have a theory about where Terrell might be, Alex? I have no idea. I have no idea mm. what kind of weird German uh, Unterwelt he has uh, vanished <laughs> into. Uh, I, I'd forgotten that that was a, that that was a thread that he's you know that he's off in the he's in the tall corn somewhere. What was the theory though? Uh, I don't. It's so mind blowing that I don't even know that I should say it. I, I mean, I'm going to credit that it's Cole, Kirk Goldsberry or okay. Kirk Goldberry. Like our own Kirk Goldberry is has the, has given me this theory. I'm ready. Um, he thinks that Elliot's Terrell too. What? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, it kind of makes sense. There's that moment with the mask, right? He's trying to look and see who. Who this? Who the person? Who the F Society leader is behind that mask? And I mean, he recognizes something in that moment that you know the, the average viewer isn't recognizing. Um, and it's you know, I mean, it, they do not go out of their way to support that 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 theory, and yet it seems entirely plausible. Except, I mean, and so it, it, I'm sure season two is going to have going to replay that scene between Elliot and the wife. Uh, that like stunningly like disturbingly beautiful woman um who plays his wife uh that scene will will mean something entirely different if it turns out that kirk is right and that elliot is indeed also terrell i mean this is the 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 only sort of issue that i i see myself having with the show down the road is it is if something like keep doing this that it could yeah that it could keep just (laughs) kind of being like that whole thing didn't happen the way that you saw it happen because also he has i mean there's a lot of it it, it's i i don't support the 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 the, the tyler durden's if like the tyler durden's are just off having meetings with other people Mm -hmm. you know and like everybody Mm -hmm. can sort of see because you know there is like there's you know you've you've seen him have one-on-ones terrell with various other characters, you know, within this, I don't know. I'm just sort of. Wait, it's it, it's interesting that you're still sort of figuring out what the rules are of this, yeah, of this world. I, I like that. Oh, I do too. I yeah. do too. I mean, like that's the thing. Like that's what you know. My wife finds that very frustrating, and it likes to know what the rules are, and as long as they can be whatever the rules are, as long as they're not you know inconsistently applied. And mm-hmm. you know, I think we're still waiting to see. You know what that what that's going to be. I don't. I don't think. I think Terrell is a, is, a, is an actual person. I think. I think he's real. I feel like there was there was a moment when it seemed like everybody was fake, and then we're kind of mm-hmm. you know we're, we're we're 
you know, we're we're getting there. I still don't know, like, you know, if the I liked your I liked that theory that you had. Well, yeah, no, I thought those are those were real people in my theory. My theory was that that was a that was a kind of you know an inventive sort of visual representation of the internet of a chat room, right, 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 of some kind of yeah, some kind of a forum where they were all communing, and maybe they're not actually all in the in the same place at the same time in that way but that was a way to show it without having it just be like names on a screen i don't know that i was right about that um but i i still like that idea i liked it too i don't know i i i there's a lot of things to like about this show i think the first of which is that it it is sort of coherent as a as a sort of as a vision um I like. I mean, the thing that fascinates me is this idea that anybody can be anything at any time, um, and that there is no sort of fixed. I mean, whoever these people are, whoever these people say they are, doesn't necessarily mean that that's who they actually are. It's just who they think they are, and that you know people's identities are subject to change at, at any given moment. Um, I also like the way that, you know, what I'm sure they called Gloria Rubin and and made her reshoot the something to get that Ashley Madison. Actually, when he mentions the Ashley Madison hack, he's not, his lips aren't moving. It's like they did a voiceover or something. Yeah, it's on her back. I thought that was smart. Yeah, Yeah. that that definitely seemed like they looped that after after the, you know, because there wasn't any real, they didn't really weave it into the plot. And then this Ashley Madison thing. Right, Just, right. No, but it was it was smartly done. It did not feel oh, it didn't feel too much. Oh yeah, if you're this show, I mean, like, and that's you know, I mean, the the, the postponement I think is part of that too. It's weird. It's it, it's so on top of things that like you, you almost you know you, it's it's almost like you can't. It's never finished. Right. You also talk about not having anything fixed in any particular way. Like the way the world works right now, this show could be postponing episodes for the foreseeable future. Yeah, that, that's that's what I thought too. I was like, okay, that's that that's fine. I mean, you know, your your Bud Dwyer reference is unfortunately the, the timed at, at at this moment. But yeah, no, it's just gonna, it's going to keep going like that. Anyway, I'm excited. Who's wait? Who do you think is at the door? Oh, that's a good question. I think it's. I mean, it's. I mean, at the t- before, I, before Kirk gave me that theory, I thought it was Terrell. I mean, in, it could still be Terrell. In that theory, it can't be. Well, yeah, I guess. I guess it, it could, could still be either way, but it would just mean something totally different if Kirk's correct, and then they are the same person. But the question then is, who? I mean, I guess what's really interesting is this is one of the few shows where you have this ensemble, and you sort of feel like at any moment. Any one of those people could be the dominant. I mean, if you're looking for a protagonist, any one of those people could, I don't know, assert control over the narrative or over the point of view of the narrative. And, you know, what are we I mean, what are we to make of that that post credit sequence that's, you know, at that evil court party you know <laughs> yeah i did think that was a that was a little bit like 60s casino royale you know like that everybody yeah. <laughs> there's the one like we're, we're actually just the distribution of that and then it's like oh here's the most evil guy in africa and here's the most you know like all of the different sort of like the sort of the model un of evil basically like you know at the at the evil core party but that was yeah you know i like that idea i like that this show could end up being not about hacking except in the you know in a very I circumstantial think that would be, way, that would be great. I mean, I think that I think that you, in some ways, have. I mean, I think the people making this show now understand 
the the limitations of presenting that world. And you and I have talked about this. The one of the things that's great about the show is it's not you don't get any of the sort of visual BS that you get in other representations of a show like this. Yeah, very or little. Like, right. And so, I mean, it really is this very complex human drama about people who happen to use technology to, to carry out certain, certain behaviors. Um, but in that regard, it's not terribly different from, you know, other means of sort of either mass destruction or the, the conversation around which people decide whether or not to commit it. Um, cause I mean, the most important thing isn't the pressing of the button. It's the conversation that either results in the pressing or the turning of the key or whatever. Uh, that it's the conversations that either lead up to the decision to, well, this conversation at least lead up to the decision either to turn the key or push the button or whatever, yeah. um, or not to do it. And so I like, I like that aspect of the show too. Um, so yeah, season two, looking forward to it. You know, it's not having season two. No, show me a hero is not coming back. <laughs> show me a hero gave you six seasons of TV in like eight hours, which was fine. As we complained last week, HBO just seemed to not really care much about this show. They didn't seem super excited to have this. No, it's. I agree. You know, this is the problem. I've seen like I've seen. I saw way more commercials for ballers. You know, and I mean that makes sense. I understand why that is, and why you're, you know, but it, I don't know. It was a weird. It was it was a weird because we were talking about we were talking about Winona Ryder because we were, this conversation started at my house because we were talking about Winona Ryder being the only person in this cast who does not have uh, the sort of period appropriate hair because mm. she obviously didn't want to cut the hair to you know get some go you know go to like the the supercuts haircut that she would have as a you know public servant in 1980s uh, Yonkers. So it's, mm-hmm. you can see the hair is kind of tucked under. She's like, yeah, I'm going to, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's not, it wasn't distracting for me, but I see what you mean. Yes. And so go on. And we we're talking about, okay, so why, you know, this is a relatively small part. It's like, why is there a movie star? And then we're talking about like, where can you put him? And then we're having the same conversation about Catherine Keener, where it's like, you just are, you're, you, you were clearly in this story looking for places to put a somewhat famous person. So you could say like, this is show me a hero starring these actors that you have heard of. You know, and to make that to make that into something that people would want to see, I just don't understand the you know the economics necessarily. I'm glad this existed. I'm glad this got to this was this was on HBO. I'm just not sure. You know, are they? I'm not sure what the end game is. Like, what the thing is that you want? Unless it's like you know another what what you want out of David Simon that you're like, okay, you can do this, and then we'll you know. I don't know how that works. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yes, you're look. You're talking about business models. Yeah, which I know which I know nothing about and don't pretend to. Right. Well, I mean, if you're if you're David Simon and uh, you know William Zorzi and Paul Haggis, the William Zorzi and William F. Zorzi, I guess officially, and and David Simon wrote the entire project, and Paul Haggis directed all of it, and you know, I think that it's a it's a it's a it's a thing that HBO can say that they did, and I don't know, do the would anybody if they had marketed the hell out of this thing had would they have watched it? Even even if they'd spent that marketing money, probably not. I mean, HBO is good at what it does for a reason. And, I mean, somebody or many people probably said, look, I don't know what we're going to do, what we can do about this. We have no stars. We have, uh, <laughs> we have almost seven hours of TV, eight hours of TV. 
let's just we'll just put it on. It'll live. People will talk about it. You know, this podcast will discuss it at some point. Andy and Andy and, and Chris will talk about it on Hollywood Perspectives podcast. I mean, I, I don't I don't know. I just I my real annoyance was the thing we talked about last week. We're like, I just couldn't find it in on HBO Go. But right. having let that go. Moving on to the actual quality of this show, I mean, of, of this of this miniseries, I think it's really strong. I think it got stronger as it went. I was really torn about the point of view. And, like, I always have this, you know, when I watch something now, I'm like, who is this for? Like, who, who, who would a show about integrating sections of Yonkers in, 19, in, the, in the late 90s and early... Uh, late eighties and early nineties. Who would that be for? Um, and so in episode five, I believe, um, there's a character in the show, um, played by Catherine Keener, um, who is, you know, a resident of Yonkers doesn't want the, her name is Mary Dorman, I believe. And she's in East Yonkers. And that section is going to receive some housing, uh, for poor you know, some section eight, some subsidized housing, um, public housing. And it means that poor black people and, and Hispanics will, uh, be moved or Latins will be moving into that neighborhood. And she initially joins this group of people, uh, Yonkers, white Yonkers residents who want to keep the housing from being built and having those people move in. Uh, but as these things go, she has a change of heart and becomes, joins a different group that is responsible for overseeing that, you know, wants to sort of, it's not even a group. It's like two women, um, working with the city to, to help, um, make the transition more smooth. And there's a scene in which the, the two, two of the women go into the housing project, uh, to see where the, their future neighbors are going to live. And, you know, it's like, Oh look, two white ladies walking around this housing project. What a science fiction project this must seem to them. Um, and it's to say to the audience, who most of whom probably have never been in public housing before, um, this is some version of what that experience is like. White person, uh, how's it? I mean, you know, non-poor white person. Uh, how's it going for you? How are you? Do you understand what these people are eager to leave? Um, and I don't know. I mean, it didn't bother me, but I definitely got that. I, I watching them walk through that, through that, through those in that sequence, watching them walk through that building was, was like that for me or, or right. That I she has to sense that she has to have a conversion experience. Yeah. I mean, she'd ought to be fair. I mean, she'd already kind of changed her mind at that point, but like the completion, the walkthrough, so to speak, you know, she goes in one, she goes in sort of one person and comes out sort of a different person. I, I don't know. I found that both powerful and, and sort of painfully literal at the same time. And, you know, as a person who's struggling with the, with this question of like, who is this show for? Um, like if you're a person of, if you're a person of color, um, particularly somebody who is familiar with, with not the Yonkers version of this story, but you know, if you, if you grew up in public housing um, and have not been fortunate enough to get out, like 
are are they telling you something that you couldn't that you didn't already know about the about the sort of either the municipal fight to to create this housing or the people in the neighborhoods to who who didn't want it to happen i mean what's what's in it for you if you if you aren't you know is the storytelling strong enough or the characters interesting enough and i don't necessarily think they are cuz i think you know nick wasisco uh, who plays the the mayor, um, the one-time mayor of Yonkers, is he is the most interesting. He, you know, by virtue of Isaac, Oscar Isaac playing him and by virtue of his being the most vivid character in the in the hours of, of television we get, um, you know, the other characters sort of suffer from not being as sort of charismatically drawn and acted as he as his is. And so you're left with these sort of somewhat diagrammatic characters in the in a somewhat schematic situation. Yeah, I agree. I think that is the, the that's that's a weakness of it. That it, 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 it bothered me less as it went on because you start to see where it's going and why those characters are there, and that they're not and just it's, there to kind of flesh out or you know for any. They're not purely programmatic because ultimately it's like you need those people. You need to get to know those people um, so that you can when you get to the end of this story, which is in many respects a sad ending. You, there is not it's 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 not like just crushingly depressing. You need to feel like some of these people have you know have have won and have bettered themselves. You know, and, yes. and, have, and have moved ahead up until that point. I mean, it does it does feel they're just not as vivid. You know, they're based on real people, but they're, you know, it's obviously like, you know, I, I'm assuming I've not read the book that this is based on, but I assume they have way more information about the sort of thoughts and, you know, lives of the people on the municipal side and the people in city government and, you know, all of that. Uh, so, yeah, it's not I, I know exa- I know what you're saying. And I did I did feel like there was something when it when it would leave, you know, Wasisco and like his world and, you know, go to the world of the you know the projects and of the people who are moving into the, you know, ac- you know, across the river or whatever it is, uh, it would lo- it would lose some steam and some energy. Right. And it's one of those things, too, where I mean, it has Latanya Richardson, who is wonderful. Uh, as this woman named Norma O'Neill, who is a, I think she was a home health aide and she is losing her sight. And I really thought that they would, I mean, I think as a, as a, as a symbol, uh, as, as uh, I thought that was really powerful and it does really speak to, I mean, her, her, her certainty, her, both her sort of life skepticism about, you know, good things happening, um, and you know, her sort of actual strength as a, as a woman and as a, you know, human being are really formidable and, and, but you know, you, I don't know, they don't want to, I, I can, I can feel if you're telling the story, you don't want to give all of that, that side of the story over to one person's story so they I mean you have these other four characters all of whom are, are are women of color um which is another really interesting thing and it really struck me and moved me um and made me angry but not for anything that the show necessarily did just you know it it seems both <laughs> tragic and right that you know none of the stakeholders in this new housing are men um 
it's all women at these at these community meetings. It's all women sort of being condescended to by the city about how they're going to live among their new white neighbors. Um, right. The only man in that scenario is uh, uh, is it is it Billy Rowan? Bill, her her uh, yeah, Billy Rowan. Of, you know, kind of malcontent. Uh, you know. Uh, father of her kids who comes in and sort of kind of, you know, I guess, I guess does actually blow that situation for her. So the one time that there is a, any kind of a, you know, man in that scenario, like he's, he's the problem. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I think, wait, I think Billy is, I th- I don't remember what that kid's name is. I don't think it's Billy. Is it Billy? I thought it was Billy. It's my, I think that's her name. Oh, it might be her, her the, what, the yeah, actress name? All right. Uh, I, no, I'm gonna... Dominique Fishback, I think, is the one who plays Billy Rowan. And she gets involved with that guy whose last name is, I mean, whose name now I can't remember. Um, But, yeah, I mean, that's that's your, you know, the Latanya Richardson's character, Norm O'Neill, has a son who doesn't live there and, you know, helps her move into the new to the new complex. Um, and it's got a lot of like, I mean, it is basically a tragedy that you, that is slowly revealed to you. I mean, it's not just sort of what happens to Nick Wasisco, but I mean, the sort of the specter that, that, that continues to linger in the way we talk about housing, um, affordable housing and unaffordable housing and development in these cities, um, in cities much bigger and much more racially fraught than 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 yonkers um i mean all of those things are really resonant it's a smart show um it's you know i mean the things that are really interesting about it for me have a lot more to do with the government i guess maybe because that's a universe i know nothing about i know very little about and have no expertise in not that i have expertise in you know public housing either but um, and like, you know, the building of it or anything, but you know, I mean, I grew up in a family where a lot of us lived in public housing and this is, I mean, a lot of that sort of stuff is, is, is not new to me. The stress of, of being put through lotteries and hoping for the best and, you know, not understanding why the city isn't paying the right kind of attention to your living conditions is, you know, those things are those things are really fascinating. And, you know, if you're, if you happen to be a resident in one of those houses, extremely infuriating. Um, and there is this really, you know, terrible push and pull between the people in those communities, among the people in those communities, you know, these mothers and grandmothers and aunts who are trying to like raise people's children and keep them out of gangs and keep them off of drugs. And, you know, it's just this pernicious tension that never goes away unless you actually leave the premises in, 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 in a lot of cases, very few, you know, not enough people leave them in a positive way. Um, and you know, the show is, is sort of getting at that to some extent, but you know, for me, the thing the, where all the really great dramatic energy was, was in the state house or in the, in the at city hall. Um, all of that backstabbing and maneuvering and sort of egotism was really was really interesting and you know he couldn't the show real the one corner that the move that the the show cuts i think is like making most of those people in the housing projects really really virtuous um and so they're just not as dramatically interesting as people because they have to represent a kind of nobility and goodness um versus the city hall people who can be venal and you know selfish 
And yeah, it's much more fun to play if you're an actor, I think. Yeah, especially even even like you know Oscar Isaac himself, Nick Wasisko himself is he's at you know and, and he's eventually undone by that you know sort of just the desire to get ahead politically. But you know he makes the you know the decision that he makes the fateful decision that he makes to you know to enforce this ruling about the public housing that's you know cost him his political career. Right, which he was against initially, and then you know decided to enforce when. When he becomes mayor. Right. He runs against it successfully. He, he runs saying, like, we won't, you know, we will fight this, you know, as far as we can. And then he gets in there and he's like, actually, no, we can't. We can't fight this. And, like, that's all, you know. So, like, that's what, you know, that, that's, the, that's the thing about this show that I think is great is that it's ultimately, it's, it's not like he's, you know, he's doing this, like, out of some great, you know, he's not Atticus Finch. He's not like, you know, I believe that this is right and I, you know, I should fight. The, it's like he just is like, we have to enforce the law or else the city will go bankrupt. And that's it's like, I mean, you know, I was going to I was going to ask, like, do you think this is actually just a is, is this at the end of the day a, a really depressing show? Is it maybe more depressing than The Wire? Because it doesn't have, you know, at least in The Wire is fiction and like you can get some people, you know, you can up, you can just decide to uplift some people. David Simon is the god of the fictional Baltimore can sort of raise him out of it. Whereas this is like this is a story about someone who is trying to do the right thing, not out of it being the right thing, but because it's the law and because there is no, you know, that he really has no choice and like still is destroyed for it. Um, I don't know. Is that a, bummer? I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a bummer, but I don't actually know that he's his, I don't know that this representation of, of Nick with this version, this character in this, in this miniseries, I had a degree of sympathy for mostly because his, his narcissism, like it, it, it outstrips his goodness on almost every possible turn. Yeah. Um, you know, his, his wife, uh, Nano, um, you know, he throws her under the bus like three times. <laughs> and every time she's like, I cannot believe I keep falling for this. Like, stop it. You know, you're firing my boss and then you're rehiring my boss. It just, it, it is, it is, I mean, it is all of the stuff is, that's happening at City Hall is just really, really it's just really well done. And I mean, the Winona Ryder character who's, um, uh, uh, Vincenza, uh, who's her full name is now escaping me. Um, Vinnie Restiano, I think is what her name is. Uh, you know, I mean, they, she and Nick Wasisco are friends. Um, and gradually that relationship, you know, is, is worth, is expendable to him as well. um, I mean, I, 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 it is. Tra- I mean, it's tragic, but I mean, and I think it's depressing. I think the thing that the the show picks up on, and the reason that it that it the thing that's important about it is the resonance beyond Yonkers of of both the race class of of the race class and housing crisis. It's this perfect storm of problems, and you know, you can go to many cities, many sort of mid tier cities around the country. And encounter these same things. I mean, the anniversary of Katrina uh, was the tenth anniversary. Uh, anniversary of Katrina was last month, and you know there are a lot of stories you can tell about that place. And one of them is about the the people who have yet to come back, who mostly are black. And it's I think the black population is I don't know what the percentage is, but a hundred thousand people have yet to return. Um, and, you know, a lot of those houses have yet to be rebuilt in a lot of those neighborhoods. 
and there are people living in neighborhoods, you know, where all their neighbors are gone and have yet to come back. And, you know, at the time, if, if you remember, like, there was a lot of conversation about whether to build New Orleans, and then some people would just sort of be even more bald-faced than that. Like, well, you know, it's the black people don't need to be there. Um, you know, or it's a black city. Who cares? Um, you know, I, I don't know. I just feel like this show is sort of speaking to a larger thing and is sort of meant... I mean, it's funny because this is an actual incident um, that plays... It still plays allegorically because a lot of the themes are timeless and universal. Um, and, you know, I think if you're David Simon, you recognize that that's the tragedy, which is that you could still tell a story about this. You could, you could tell this story and have it not at all feel like a period piece beyond the costumes yeah. and the glasses. Yeah. The, the, the jeans and the, the car exhaust that they have to put right. in, put in digitally because cars don't, don't do that anymore. Right. Uh, yeah, no, it's weird. It's a, I, I, I go back and forth about whether or not it's, you know, and, and this has been this is this is the criticism some people have brought up of Simon before is that, that, that you know it, with other things that it it shows but that what are you really what are you doing by showing these are you actually sort of suppressing every the people's you know desire to change things by showing these institutions as intractable and unchangeable and like showing the you know like or is it like is this you know are by like you know lionizing this very incremental progress you know are you you know, are you, are you, you know, sort of allowing people to imagine that that's possible in a way that you, you haven't before. I don't know. I feel right. like the set, the moment it turns on for me is when Wasisco goes to watch the lottery, the housing lottery, mm-hmm. which I watched that we watched the sort of the thing afterwards where Simon and Paul Haggis like talk about the show and they have a very different reading of that scene. My reading of it is that he's, you know, it's it. This is his. This is the moment of triumph that he gets. This is as far as it. Like the, this is his ticker tape parade. Is getting to see these people, some of these people, be excited that they're going to they're getting to to leave the projects and move into these townhouses. But he realizes at some point that he's going to have to sit there and watch all the people not get in, and he can't mm-hmm. handle it, and he has to leave. And that that's you know that that's the thing. Their description of it is that he wanted to be recognized. You know, that he wanted to have a moment, you know, and that that's it, that it's an extent that it's the when he go subsequently goes door to door in the new townhouse community, knocking on doors to, to sort of you know, see how the hot water's doing or whatever, that that's that that's an extension of that desire. Um, but I, I, I found it very there's something very, you know, that I mean, that's the that's the tragedy for me is that he serves sits there and he's like, this is and it's it's like it, it's saying this is as much as you can do in this position. If you, you know, if you're this guy, if you're the mayor of Yonkers, you get this far in life and this is as far as you can go to help people basically. Right now. I think it's some combination of both those things. I think, I mean, I really, I liked, I, 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 I was sort of torn about that scene cause I didn't know where it was going. The, not the scene at the lottery, but the subsequent scene where he goes knocking on all the doors mm-hmm. and the, the, the obviously, you know, if all the young people are like, I don't who are you? Or I don't remember you, or 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 whatever. You know that he's going to get to Norma's door, and she's going to be like, "Oh yeah, okay." And then I don't know. I mean, I guess you know they have to sort of. I I think the thing that sort of pushes him over the edge is the idea that like there's a kind of futility. There was a futility in his having allegedly done this heroic thing. When were you? I mean, I guess when you think about it, I mean, there is a degree to which it's heroic, and there's a degree to which, like, it was court mandated. 
<laughs> oh yeah, no. You know, the only heroic I, thing he does is say this is court mandated and we have to do right, it, whether right. we like it or not. But I mean, even that can be held up as a as a kind of as a kind of 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 heroism. And I think that you know this is a show that really is about this like really fine line between altruism and, nar- and narcissism, and you know being noble and being self servingly, self consciously right minded. Um, and I thought that, you know, I didn't, of course the Catherine Keener character has to make a complete reversal from being, you know, uh, a not in my backyard racist to being like an in my front yard <laughs> haver of black friends. Um, but Stare I found her down of the other racist ladies. Right. 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 Look them right in the eye and give them the first shame look. But again, like, I do think that, like, the problem in this scenario from a structural standpoint and historically is not black people and, and, you know, Latinos, it's white people. And so in some ways, yeah, it has to be a white person talking to white people about their responsibility, involvement, uh, their instrumental. I mean, at every stage of this, of this story. You know, white people are on both sides of this issue, and I think that black people as as stakeholders are also sort of recipients of of whatever the the final judgments are. I think that this idea that I mean, whenever you hear people talk about this isn't really my issue. This is a this is a this is a this is a race issue, and therefore a black issue, and doesn't have anything to do with me. I always reject that because. I mean, I mean, you just look at the decision making that gets done. I mean, the, the lawyer for the NAACP is a is a white guy, and it, I mean, at every point, all of the decisions that get made, pretty much all of them, except for um, the neighborhood consultant who runs this um, this you know who helps with the relocation from the projects to the townhouses, uh, who's played by Clark Peters. Um, they're all white, and. I think that is a that is a necessary I mean I hesitate to use the term public service but I mean you know any reminder that 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 white people have a stake in in black lives mattering is <laughs> is is an important thing to be made known and, and to remind people of yeah no, I mean, I think that's, I, I, no, it's hard. It's like, I, 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 you know, yeah, you don't want to be like, but, it, but it is, it's like, that's where, you know, it's the people that the people in power have all the, you know, like, so, I mean, I guess that's, it's, it, you can't really complain about these, these characters not, you know, having that much agency in this story because they don't really. Because they, they don't, wouldn't. right. No, I mean, be, it's a, it's a hard thing to compare, to complain about, right. Yeah. Um, yet. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love this. I, I, I like that this existed. I you know I think it was it was sort of the perfect length. I was really happy about you know the the, the like you know I, I, I like six six hours like it felt you know you had enough time. Oh wait, can we just talk yeah. about one sure. really major complaint I have? Okay. The Springsteen. We did not talk about the Springsteen. <laughs> the use of the Springsteen. I was trying to figure out what is the thing that I was most annoyed about when I was watching it that sort of told me who the show is really for. And I know I just like gave this whole argument about like why it why it why having why it, it should be, be white, white people, people talking to white people is to the good. Yeah. But I mean, look, I'm a black person watching this show. I'd like, I mean, it's not that I, ob- I object to the, on the noseness of the Springsteen and the, like the, you know, he's from Asbury park, New Jersey. 
<laughs> I mean, it's one of those things where I bet it's. I assume it's like that's a Nick Wasisco detail, you know, that he's maybe like a Springsteen but, fanatic. Yes, but yes, just, you mostly hear it when when he's around. But it's used in montages that involve many other people. Oh, sure. I mean, like they, they really went in, which I feel like is almost. It should almost be off limits. Still, Secret Garden. Not that that's not one of the best Springsteen songs. I'm not a big Springsteen fan. I'm going to tell you the truth. Not a huge Springsteen fan. I don't know if I've talked about my Springsteen issues on this on this uh, podcast. You have. You have. But uh, I like I like Cynthia Springsteen, and uh, you know. But Secret Garden is like that. Is you know that's like pretty strongly associated with with another movie. With another movie. It's like you're breaking <laughs> the seal on something that's real, you know, that like to the point that there was a a single version of that song that was out that had dialogue snippets from another movie from yes. that from Jerry Maguire on the radio. And anyway. like, yeah, I, no, I agree with you. I I agree, but it's also yeah, Springsteen tells you something specific. It is the, you know, it's some it's the bridge. It's supposed to be the bridge between the kind of you know the sort of the the you know good uh, liberal type people who are the you know uh, the kind of the core of the audience for this show and the the converted that this show is preaching to about these issues and like you know Chris Christie or something it's that it's everybody feels that, that Springsteen is a uniter yes in, in that yes, sense yeah. but it it makes sense no it does it just it seemed to me like something again I've not read the book I bet they were like oh you know Nick Wasisko always listening to Springsteen I bet not always. Yeah, well, not like constantly. You you needn't you needn't be so beholden to Lisa Belkin's book. That, I guess that you 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 couldn't find oh I don't know a James Ingram song to play. I wouldn't want to be. <laughs> I would not want to be have my sort of fictional representation be controlled by like oh what are his frequently played artists on on Spotify you know that guy. I mean I don't know it's a, it was it seemed like it was a quibble and then by like the seventh song I was just like this is this this is crazy no yeah I'm just saying I, I don't want my mini series to be all, all all tame Impala just because that's what they found when you know right. they last oh. they looked you know took the last look I don't think that represents me that's not who I am well we'll be right back to talk about who who Steve Jobs was according to Alex Gibney we'll be right back it was a life well and fully lived, even if it was a bit expensive for those of us who were close. I don't know about you, Wesley, but I've never felt more weird about taking out my phone after a movie screening than I did after seeing Alex Gibney's Steve Jobs, the man in the machine. So true. And yet... I mean, so just say this is a movie. This is just sort of a, a two-hour and five, eight-minute ambivalence study and ambivalence about the Steve Jobs, the man versus Steve Jobs, the the visionary. Um, it is it is full of like people in his life confessing, holding what I would say are confessional therapy sessions. Uh, with the director Alex Gibney, who sits across from them, does it's not mic'd for his cameras, so it's that classic subject mic'd filmmaker not mic'd, and will ask a question off camera, like, "So was he a nice guy?" And I, I can't. Well, I screwed it up, so it'll be more like, "So he was a nice guy," and then I will answer, eh, "He was a dick." Um, I, I, the movie is full of things like that. It's, it's, but it's got, I will say for Alex Gibney, who makes a movie every 10 minutes, he's got a movie coming out. Um, it, 
it this is this sort of patience i guess i'm always sort of surprised when there's like some filmmaking in one of his movies i'm like when did he have time to actually do filmmaking um but there's a real tone and a mood and often it's dread here um and i was i mean i i enjoyed watching i i mean it's it's worth watching there's a lot of things that if you've heard the story once you've you you know very well he just gets all the players together um and some of the recipients of some of that abuse and inspiration to talk about what kind of man and boss Steve Jobs was. Yeah, I mean, if you've read the Walter Isaacson book, for example, you will know a lot of the things that are in here. But it's it's something about the organization, the way that it, the case is laid out. Because I don't know, I didn't find it as ambivalent as you did. I found it pretty ambivalent about <laughs> this the, about this pro- this probably being a terrible person. And oh, well, his terribleness is sort of, I mean, right. What I'm saying is, well, but about his terribleness being somehow inseparable from his genius instead. Well, no, inseparable from his genius, but in, in, in some way, a part of everything that he built. Like, that's mm, what I find. Mm-hmm. That's the thing that I find about Because, yeah. yeah, obviously, like, there's many. No, you could have that's... many things where it's like, you know, oh, like, whatever, you know, like Sly Stone was a difficult guy to know. Or something, but look at the genius, you know, whatever it is, like Frank Lloyd Wright, like, you know, something, you know, I don't know, Frank Lloyd Wright was probably an okay guy, I don't know, um, I have no idea, but it's it, it, it's not like that, it's not one of those things where it's like, but look at all the, the beautiful things, it's like, it is, it, 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 the point that it makes, and that I don't know, I don't know necessarily that, it, you know, it entirely makes this point, like, dr- really drives that home necessarily, but like, it is, the thing, the most interesting thing that it's exploring is, like, the idea that his everything that was sort of messed up about Steve Jobs socially has now been kind of become airborne and contagious because we have everybody has, you know, the sort of this little Steve Jobs box in our pocket with like a little bit of his, you know, and like and that the world that he made by creating the iPhone and sort of by creating this, you know, in thing where we're all sort of, you know, alone together with our iPhones is a kind of world where everyone is Steve Jobs now in some right. way. And like, it's that's the provocative part of it for me. Mm-hmm. And like, that's what I thought, you know, like as someone who, who was, you know, sort of like knew all that stuff and was kind of sitting there mentally checking off, like, okay, let's get to, you know, like, when are we going to get, you know, when are we going to do China? And it's like, you know, then when there we are and here's the, you know, here's the China stuff. Like it, it, you know, when you, if you know all that, if you're not, you know, if, if this is not your first exposure to his, you know, biography and his story and, you know, well, to be clear that the China stuff is the, the place where these devices are made and the like suffering of the people who make them, um, is part of it. And it, it holds off on that long enough that I was almost like, is this, or is he not going to, touch this and then of course yeah i thought i thought the same i i mean i'm not a fan of looking at my watch but i was like well wait a minute how much time is left here oh, 45 minutes okay <laughs> yeah so then like, i'm sure we'll get there yeah and then of course like eventually gibney comes off the top rope with the china stuff and it's just it's it's devastating and you know it as it you know there's there's really no you know it, it ends up being that you know his kind of closing argument almost in a, in a sense um yeah, I, I I like this a lot. I found it. I found it, it's a good uh, double feature with Mr. Robot. In yeah, a lot of ways, yeah, for sure. I think it it ends up it, it it ends up weirdly, you know, dovetailing with that. 
Well, because I mean, the place—I mean, the, the 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 thing that sort of makes Mister Robot possible in a lot of ways is the thing is the very sort of hero worship that we associate with Steve Jobs. And you know, to be fair to the people who did feel that way when he died, I'll, I mean, I can't say that it wasn't public knowledge, but it, there there hadn't been the sort of the the Steve Jobs is an awful person narrative was not the one that took hold culturally until after his death. And like, you know, you have these more complicated explorations of his, of his personality because the Isaacson book came out after he died. Right. Wasn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, it was like the year, I think it was, he died in November, I believe, or it December was pretty fast. Yeah. It was not far after that. So, I mean, I think this, this, the, the coalescence of this, not alternative narrative, but I mean this sort of more complicated, fuller picture in which all of these stories that had been in the media about what it was like to work at Apple and work for Steve Jobs had had been collected into you know something like that book and something like um, you know other stories that were written about him, mostly around the time of his death too. Um, uh, you know that stuff is really the ideas around like who this person was sort of worked to disillusion and dispel the, the, the worship that we, that we had in this guy. And I mean, and you know, what was interesting about Steve jobs, um, if you didn't know that he was sort of a monster to work for or whatever, um, was that he seemed different from other CEOs too. Like this was a CEO that you knew and it, the thing that he made, you could actually see, right? You could actually use and understand the thing that he, the devices he was, he was coming up with. He and the people who worked at Apple were coming up with. And so he was a very sort of culturally friendly CEO. Like, yes, he was extremely rich and very powerful. I mean, he didn't dress like a CEO. He sort of reappropriated this, like, um, you know, uh, not it's not anarchist. It's not hippie. It's more like our technology is like organic technology, um, and and it's good for you, and it's better than the other stuff. And like, if you're scared of computers, you don't have to be afraid of an Apple device because we we've, we've hid the computer as far away from you as humanly possible. Yeah, it's soulful. I mean, there's right. you know, in they sort of dramatize this in the like uh, this movie dramatizes it, and it certainly right. it's right. it was yes. it was really well dramatized as well in Halt and Catch Fire. There's a moment in Halt and Catch Fire towards the end of. Uh, the first season. The first season, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you, you remember you remember what I'm talking about? There's the, there's the moment of basically there's a moment in Halt and Catch Fire. They, it's a, it's a show about them trying to create a personal computer to compete with the things that are on the market. And there's a moment when the the fictional computer company in Halt and Catch Fire almost basically invents the Macintosh that's like friendly and says hello and talks to you. They don't have it speaking. You know, but there's a moment mm. when Joe McMillan, played by Lee Pace, sees the Macintosh for the first time at a computer expo, and, and it's sort of there's a demo, there's a sort of a demo in a hotel room, and it's you know it says like you know hello, welcome to Macintosh, and he's like it speaks, and he's like he has that moment, and he realizes that he's lost the mm-hmm. the race in that moment because he did not see the wisdom that Steve Jobs had, which is to make these computers personal, like you know really personal and like make, you know it, like. That it would be an you know an, an emotional experience in some way and like a sort you know you would identify with them and it would be you know they would be sort of humanized you know and mm-hmm. like that's the thing that you know that's the amazing thing that Apple did and like that's where you know this relationship comes from 
but I like I like that Gibney's sort of interested in and worried about what that transference of affection from the you know from the product to the person and like that sort of that blurring that happens you know and so that's and that's that's the beginning of this movie basically is all these mourners going shopping and right. walking out of the Apple store and like the, the 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 idea of like you know the consumer memorial and like that sort of consumer mourning I think that's really interesting and I think that's almost you know it's I, I wish that I, I wish there could have been more of that, but I don't know that there's really an answer to that question, you know, and he had a lot to do, obviously. So, right. Right. No, I mean, and the, the time that he spends with individual people like Bob Belleville, um, mm-hmm. who was the director of engineering, um, at Macintosh for a, a few years, um, and was by his own estimation, not treated particularly well by Steve jobs. I mean, there's a long, passage spent with this i mean he shows up he you know he's a recurring figure throughout the movie i think you know the clip that we have that's bob belleville in our clip this week um and it's you know it's really it's some of it's great there's that i you might have to refresh my memory about this because i've i haven't seen it in a while but there's a this the the woman the mother of his child Mm -hmm. the the child that he that that steve jobs abandoned christine brennan Right. Yes. Yeah. Chrisan, I Chrisan, think. Chrisan. Yeah. Right. Chrisan. Uh, she's quoting all, all along the watchtower, and she knows it's brilliant, but then she can't remember what the Joker, whether like who says, you know, she can't remember the Joker to the thief um, line, and it just, you know, there's a lot of she's. I mean, she's torn about. I think uh, whether to praise him. I mean, there are a lot of little flourishes. Like 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 her inability to sort of remember a line like that while talking about Steve Jobs possibly being a Joker and a thief himself, or you know, not literally that, but you know, finding the sort of this sort of authentic Bob Dylan moment that that Steve Jobs was looking for. Um, and I mean, the movie is sort of full of like little grace notes like that. Well, yeah, um, that you you just you 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 find out how much he you know it, it kind of bent that song just bent the meaning of that song so that it seemed like it was about him like his ability to sort to make it about him in right. that way i like right. the, the i like the use of uh they use the, the it's the the before the flood version of all along the watchtower which is the, 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 the which is a real manic kind of like cokey sounding yeah take on that it's not the one that you're you've heard many times and it's not the hendrix version it's one that's you know slightly less less used and somehow somehow fits it a little better and sort of fits the you know tips the hand i think in a in a good way so that is uh steve jobs the man in the machine uh it is available at your local movie theater it is also available on demand i believe yes um and there's vod at my house so uh i recommend it i mean alex gibney kind of on a roll um i mean you know slowing down to one movie every 30 minutes as opposed to every five is probably a good call for him. Um, yeah, I recommend it. How do you follow? What do you do after Scientology and Apple? What are the, what, what's the, what cults are left? Alex, uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm sure he's making a Trump movie right now. I'm sure he's the guy that's going to try to make a Trump movie. He and Michael Moore are duking it out about, you know, for, for Trump rights. I can't wait. I can't. I can't wait for the. I can't wait for the Trump biopic. I really. That's. That's what I want. 
That's what I really oh want. God, is Mike Myers busy? <laughs> What's Mike Myers doing? I want the Todd Haynes biopic of Trump with like all different actors. One <laughs> oh of my them, God! <laughs> one Todd of them, Haynes one, needs the Trump biopic. God, one of them's Kate Blanchett. It just has to always be one of them is Kate Blanchett. Is the rule? <laughs> I want Kerry Washington to play a Trump. <laughs> yes, See, that's where we're going. Uh, all right, we'll be right back to talk about the weekend. I don't really know how to like encapsulate my enthusiasm for the weekend, except to say that I lost it upon hearing that whole album that came out a couple weeks ago. Um, I was really not into him. And then, you know, I can't feel my face in the Hills came out. The Hills is sort of more of the same, uh, but it's got a harder, something harder about it. And then I can't feel my feces. My, 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 I can't feel my feces. That's great, Wesley. <laughs> I can't find my keys when I'm with you. Uh, I think that was, you know that song is kind of a masterpiece. So I was eager to hear like what direction. And you and I have talked about this, like you know what, like how much of a corner this person um, has changed in the last few years since he put out an official album and you know had that much much celebrated mixtape. Um, I would say not a, not a lot. Apparently, I think that the the sort of Drake, the Drakeness of popular culture has gotten to him, and you know he feels as a as a Canadian of color that he has to sort of assert his Canadian of color and like you know to sort of like keep affirming like a reasserting his his downness by using the N word and you know calling women bitches a lot. Um, I, I mean, I'm already sensitive to that, but like this album, for whatever reason, made me extra sensitive to it. Um, I don't know. I it, it is it is not it does not succeed as a as a listening experience for me. And I've I've tried now. I'm on my third time through. Um, I don't know. Where are you? I yeah. It's it, it's weird because that I didn't love that those mixtapes. The you know the 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 three the mixtape trilogy. Um, no, we talked about collected that, as yeah. one one giant mixtape. I I didn't see. I, I understand. It's weird. Like it's not that I didn't see what the fuss was about because I did see what the fuss was about. It just the fuss was not ultimately for me. And yet this one, there was a sense on those mixtapes that there was a gap between what he was singing and saying and the, you know, the, the sort of the, the sentiments he was espousing mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. what maybe he actually meant. There was something about his, you know, his words versus his words said one thing, his voice said another thing, the combination of that voice and that music, like that R and B voice with this very sort of like heavy industrial kind of Portis heady, you know, music, which is the thing that I almost miss the most on the record is I feel like, the, you know, the, 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 the sort of his, you know, his turn in a pop direction. It's not, I don't think it's as interesting as, uh, you know, you might, you might have expected, but no, I also think, it also isn't that hard either. It's not that hard a turn. Yeah, no, but it's just, it's, it's enough that I, you know, that I, that I, that I, I missed the, I, I liked his version of trip hop because it was this version of trip hop where he's, you know, he was 22 when he started doing this or however old he was. So he was not, he didn't actually live through Abel Tespe, who is, is the weekend for all, you know, intents and purposes, uh, did not actually live through all the, you know, like the sneaker pimps. He can just go in and be like trip hop. Oh, you know, like that was, that was Portishead. Like you can just, it's just the good stuff that survives, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
no, but anyway, there's something on this record. I feel like there's he's just the the the, the persona has just like you know like just it's the mask that eats into the face. It's like he's he is now this guy. Like he do, I don't get the sense that there's any kind of you know questioning of you know the the lifestyle because that's not how it works. in the you know when you're making these pop songs, like you just need to be the guy. And there's a very there's that moment on the you know in the the um, what's the Kanye song? It's the one that's now the the the, uh, the one that Kanye produced. I forget the name of it now. I'm forgetting, I don't have oh. it in front of me. It's the it's like track it's remember. like track four. Basically, it's the one where he kind of gives you he gives you like you know hey everybody here's the we- I'm the weekend and here's what I'm about. You know he's like oh he's just right. yeah living life so trill taking pills like oh, oh, you know, it's, like the, oh it's tell your friends tell it's your tell friends your friend. yeah tell your yeah. friends is very much like it's like a weekend infomercial like if you don't know who this guy is if you just heard I can't feel my face and like that's that's what it's about and he's like so, you know it it. Everybody has to, you know, sort of shrink themselves down to fit through the eye of that needle or whatever. But I, I find his, you know, it's it, it, just him sort of reducing it to the, you know, the, the kind of basics of the persona, I think, you know, takes away something that I think was interesting there, which is like there was like a feeling of ambivalence on those mixtapes about the lifestyle, even if it was never expressed. I the, the, it would, There was something where it was, the, you know, there was a, a question of, you know you know what does this mean for my soul you know the, right, the way right. that i'm the way that i'm living and now i feel like it's just it just seems you know it's just kind of we're we're we're, we're pop it's a you know it's a different world yes at the same time i'm just skeptical of most of the operation now because it seems to be i mean it could be that this album is transitional and you'll like, I mean, earn it is on this record or earned it from 50 shades of gray. That's on this record. Um, can't feel my face. I mean, I, I, I feel like I, as we've discussed, I feel this, the, like there's a kind of, the, there are people who want to do this Lana Del Rey thing. Um, and some people can do it to perfection, like Lana Del Rey. Um, and you know, there's an aspect of that Miley Cyrus record that we talked about last week that has a degree of, of that about it too. What do you mean? Um, like that, that, well, that there's a, there's a spareness. There's a kind of sense of humor about the persona being explicated in some ways. Um, there is a real attention to, uh, like for lack of a better word, the cinematic quality of a song. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's re- there's some production involved in, in 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 pulling that off. And I just, you know, I feel like Lana Del Rey is like the, she to me at the moment is the apotheosis of that kind of recording. Um, and there are moments on this record that seem to be in that, in that vein without really convincing me that, that it's someplace I really want to be. And also, I don't really know what this guy's persona is. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know what this character... Who is this guy? And well, I think maybe yeah, that's I mean, the problem that I'm having with this. Because I see him and I'm like, oh, wait, this is a Key and Peele sketch, right? <laughs> like, this is... I mean, you know, I am, to, in my own defense with, with that, like, I am in the middle of, of deal, dealing with Key and Peele. Everything looks like a Key and Peele sketch. Everything now. looks like a Key and Peele sketch, right? Like, Donald Trump should be played by both of them at some point in the Todd Haynes movie that will also star Kate Blanchett and Kerry Washington. I just feel like I don't know who the weekend as a, as an artist is. And I now feel like an American idol judge in saying that, but 
it's kind of true. Like if you watch him perform at the VMAs, I mean, he's just like, this is a this is a good tiny like sweet kid who you know <laughs> when you're not looking at him is singing about like his n words and his b words and his roofies and yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. That was the thing that I liked uh, about the mixtape was that as much as it was about the club and as much as it was about like a sort of, you know, like, you know, Toronto, you know, kind of like whatever Demimon, the lifestyle or whatever there you there was something about it where it's like he might have been in his bedroom, like under the bed. You know, right, like, not, right, like he right, it was right, like right. it almost seemed like it was like this this kind of the, this vision of the club by someone who was scared to go there. Yeah, you know, like there was yes, that possibility yes, existed yes. where it was like you're singing about it, but like you know, there's some there was something like you know, I mean, he was really young when he was making that, and he sounds really young, and he sounds kind of like scared and nervous, and like it's a different. That's there a was great point. You know, yeah, but now it's like I, just seeing him inhabit this. Like I wrote this in the thing that I wrote. It's like that he's basically like. If there's a if if like both if both the weekend or Chris Brown could sing a song, then like that's not like a really important great weekend song, you know. Like it shouldn't right. it shouldn't be that easy for this material to sort of the, the material shouldn't be that transferable, right? In some right. way, and it's like what you find. I think like what you're responding to. It's not like you don't know who he is. It's like you're like, oh, is that it? Is that what it mm-hmm. was the whole time? Like he was just going to be another kind of like you know kind of hip-hop inflected r&b singer who has a bad boy persona as opposed to a good guy persona like that's that's what we you know it just feels a little bit diminished from the potential that seemed to exist on those mixtapes not musically but just kind of you know character wise or like there's a there seemed to be some kind of a story going on i feel like i miss that sense of you know whatever his kind of text was yeah there's so many guys who want to like hang with their boys and get in your panties yeah, that's not. Right. It's, he didn't. Yeah, exactly. Right. Welcome to the. I want to, yeah. you know, I want to hang on my boys. I want to get in your panties and don't even come at me with this like with a relationship kind of thing. I'm I'm not having it. Yeah, and so he's a little less caustic about that than he is on the mixtapes, you know, and it's a, right. like and about that sort of that transactional sex stuff. But like, it's just it's not. It, it's still ultimately like that's radio already has plenty of that. You know, and like I, I yeah. kind of wish that there was some sort of, that was something, you know, and there's a little bit, you know, like I think earned it is interesting, but I also feel like earned it's been around forever and it's always, I always resent somehow when those things. Yeah, I, I get it. But I mean, it, for me, it was like, oh, well, this is, a, this is an example of something else this guy can do. And I'm not saying I want him to be Carly Rae Jepsen or anything like that. I just, I also just feel like between Jason Derulo, like <laughs> music, uh, um, uh, who's the very obvious person that I'm not remembering at the moment who is not Jason Derulo, but, oh, uh, uh, Teo Cruz. I mean, there's it just, I feel like there's a, there are a lot of these people who like these sort of non-sexual sexual people. Um, and I think the thing that I like about I can't feel my face is it is both non-sexual and sexual <laughs> in, in that, you know, the thing that he's appropriating is 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 really reminiscent of Michael Jackson. The sound is reminiscent of that, and yet he he's kind of giving it a boyishness and a like lack of 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 threat that is also sort of fun at the same time. Um, I don't know where you take this this discrepancy. You know, I mean, we're talking about two different what feel to me anyway to be two different approaches to to pop and R and B that. 
are almost impossible to reconcile. Like I can't feel my I, I can't feel my face doesn't like anything else on this record, and and neither really just earned it. Um, and so everything else is operating at a at, you know for one thing a totally different BPM, and at the at the same time thematically they're not doing anything remotely similar. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I just I am. I'm I'm a little bummed that I don't love this record, and I I I wanted to. And you were really a big I can't feel my face fan. <laughs> were you? Well, I mean, I'm saying that'll you, that'll never change. When I was unsold on it, you were already you were already there. You were already a facehead, and <laughs> I feel I feel I feel bad that it's that, that it's happened. You know, oh it my god, this kid is hand out for you. This kid is 25. He'll have plenty of time to figure it out. Um. That's beauty behind the madness. Also, can you explain that title? I mean, I can explain that it's a title that sounds, you know, sounds deep when you're when you're 25. Some, some mm. deep stuff. That's the deep. This is the deep trip. I like. I was. I the, the, if you go on like a genius for the weekend, you're like looking up lyrics or whatever. There's always the the, the description. Is the, they, those titles are they always mean more than the words say. I'm like, no, that's a, that's that's pretty much. <laughs> That title kind of means that's just a title is what that is. Yeah. I mean, okay. Then I can't wait to hear the, the genius explanation for often. <laughs> uh, I think the genius explanation for often is just like when you accidentally hit a word on your Kindle and it gives you the definition of like, <laughs> of like, and you're like, Oh, I didn't mean to highlight that. I actually know what that word means. Uh, yeah. Title titles by Kindle accident is another it's another it's a whole other universe of album titling. Um, I'll be right back with the jam of the week. So I've talked on this podcast before about uh, the the uh, the '80s being a, a not not my zone in terms of music, or at least my being my you know my, my weakest of the you know the sort of musics of the eras that I've lived in. One that I'm just you know like not as strong on mm-hmm. uh, the website Pitchfork came out with its 80s a top 200 list for the 1980s a couple weeks oh boy. ago i missed that We're, i've been living under so many rocks you seriously have been insulated from a lot of uh a lot of things on the internet that made people upset oh my such God, as my, we... my review of the weekend and the pitchfork 80s list we've all been uh can we talk about the Pitchfork '80s list next week? Yeah, we totally should. I don't. I'm not. I don't mean to. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to spring it on you as something to you know, like something to. No, react I to. want to talk about it because un- unlike you, well, this is um, the thing. So okay. everybody, the, it, like I, I've checked it out. It's an interesting list. It is interesting because you have, you know, at this point. There are probably like this is probably one of those things where you could, if you wanted to, you could find a list of the top two hundred songs of the eighties done by rock critics of a completely different generation, right? Like there's now it's been there's enough time has passed since the eighties that like theoretically like those people who had kids in nineteen ninety six or whatever like I can't do math, but like the, you know the, those the, the the children of the of the you know sort of the rock critics of the you know the, the of the past are now making their own list, and so you read this and it's very you know. It's it, a lot of people have had the reaction to it has been uh, you know far ranging. A lot of people are mad about you know things not included. I don't think it's that bad of a list. It's interesting though because the sort of the, the you know the eighties are within sort of inside of the Pitchfork era, so it some things kind of feel like 
it's an 80s list that doesn't feel like it's made up of quote-unquote 80s music. Like, if you're like, let's go sit down and listen to some 80s music, you're not necessarily like, you know, uh, Guns N' Roses and Fela Kuti. Not that those people did not put out great albums in the 80s, but it's not like, oh, that's the, you know, it's not the Culture Club 80s necessarily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's been interesting because a lot of people have done – so I've been listening to this and then a lot of people have done their sort of you know alternative canons. You know, it's brought out mm. a lot of people sort of reacting to it and being like this list is full of holes and here's – you know, here are the things that are missing, um, which is to say I have been listening to a lot of 80s music as a result. <laughs> is this on the list? This is – see, now I have to figure this out. Now I have to figure out what's actually on the list. I, I, I could have looked that up. This is on somebody's list. It's probably on Pitchforks. If it's not, it should be. It should be. The system is the best. I mean, they had two hits, and this was... This is the biggest. This is the bigger of the two hits, but... Yay! I had never... I, I mean, I must have heard this. I'm sure I've heard it, but it was something where I did not consciously encounter it, and when I heard it, I thought it was Scrooty Pility at first. Ooh, yeah, of course you did. Which, yeah, I mean, it made so I was like, oh, this is a Scrooge Play song I haven't heard because I'm not that good at the 80s. But it's not. Um, so I had a really great. just a, a kind of a, you know, an idyllic four or five minutes, however long this is, while uh, cleaning algae out Hang of the side for, up for the weekend. I said, don't disturb this room. It's just a way to tell you that I'm so into you. Okay, I'm done. Uh, <laughs> we can't. That's it. That's going on the yeah. Uh, um, all right. Goes in the Thank time you, capsule. Alex. Thank you. Russell. I appreciate that. You're the best. I was miserable when we started this podcast. I'm much better now. You are going to bounce out the door of this podcast <laughs> in an '80s montage. Unlike any that you've ever experienced. This song right here is my favorite part of these songs. Oh, this is a different version from the radio version. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the same, basically. But there's a moment where, like, there's a woman on the song who, like, is talking back to him. Um, and, you know, you're like, where'd she come from? There she is. But she, she talks to him at some point. Um, anyway. Oh, here it is. Right here. Uh-huh. Ooh, baby, just lock the door and turn the phone off. Okay. Uh, Joe Fuentes, Jim Cunningham, David Jacoby, they make this show happen. If you like it, it's mostly because of them. Uh, Alex, we're just uh, we're chopped liver in this operation. We'd just be talking, and we wouldn't have microphones, and so that it would be a, the conversation would be stilted, I think. Yeah, that's true. And actually, we're extra chopped liver because the only reason the show really matters is because of y'all. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or... Go to grantland.com and click on podcasts.